Hey everybody, welcome back to the New Seat Podcast. We are joined by the founder of the People People, which is a people and culture consultancy, the one and only Laura Hammond. Laura, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm well. I've never been called the one and only before. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for asking me to be a part of this. Of course, of course, of course. Well, you are the one and only Laura Hammond. Yes, uh, from I guess. The beautiful country of Canada, as we know. But uh, you could just start start off uh, for the audience. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about your background and you know how did you come into running now the people people. Right. So I have worked in human resources my entire career. I started working for the federal government in Canada, right out of school, and then made a pivot at 30 into the retail industry, which is a really exciting and dynamic industry, dealing with both HR matters for corporate staff, as well as field staff, which is a really unique population with unique needs. And from there, uh, that, that experience in retail gave me an international career for which I'm really grateful for. I was able to work over time in in Japan, in Canada, and then now here in the United States, which is my new adopted home. And I've now been in the U.S. for seven years. And during my time here, my journey has included time with two uh, international retailers, H&M and Aritzia, a time with a fast-growing health tech startup, And last year, like many venture-backed companies, I was working with a company that was going through a series of layoffs. And I started to question what my future might look like and decided that it might be the right time to try my hand at entrepreneurship which is when I founded uh, the People People, which I call a heart-centered HR consultancy because I believe in making work more human. So that's the approach I bring to my work, which is really uh, solutions that are informed by a high degree of emotional intelligence. And I've been at that now for about eight months. Would love to dive back honestly to how you got started. Chris hinted that you're from Canada. Mm -hmm. Walking us through your really your whole background in terms of transitioning from HR in Canada to now leadership in these huge retail companies, right? H&M, Aritzia. What is the transition like? Well, even before that, talk about working in HR in the government, I guess, in Canada. What is that experience like? What was that transition coming over to the States? Was there any expectations or or looking forward to? Yeah. So my journey is very interesting in that I I think a lot of it was sort of predestined in in ways in the sense that when I was doing aptitude testing in high school, human resources showed up as a career path that I might consider. And I had never heard of anybody that worked in human resources. I didn't really know what it was. I, what's funny is that towards the latter part of my uh, career in high school, I thought, or my high school journey, I decided that I wanted to work in international relations as a diplomat representing the Canadian government. And so worked hard to get into a specific program at U of T. I had no idea really what that meant either, but I thought that representing my country and also getting to work with a variety of different stakeholders and trying to understand their needs and help to develop mutually beneficial solutions sounded interesting. That's what I understood diplomacy to be. And in fact, that's what human resources is in a lot of ways. 
And so I, I started on that path, left my hometown of Ottawa to go to the University of Toronto. I had never intended to work in government. That was sort of the career that a lot of my friends' parents had. And staying in Ottawa and working in government sounded very boring to me. I had my ambitions and my design was to live in a big city and, and work internationally. But I started to struggle a lot with anxiety and depression in my second year of school. And this was back in, not to reveal my age, but this was back in the early 2000s when the understanding of mental health issues was not as advanced as it is now. And certainly there weren't a lot of services uh, on my campus. And so I ultimately returned home to Ottawa and ended up taking a bit of a break. And during that time was working temp work in the in the federal government. And I was very lucky to have a number of female leaders that sort of took me under their wing and explained to me what working in human resources looked like. I happened to be paired in a role that worked closely with an HR department. And I had one particular person that explained to me exactly what I needed to do in order to be eligible for this type of role, why she thought that I would be a good fit. And I was able to architect the next steps in finishing my education and the summer jobs or, you know, uh, winter break jobs that I was taking to align myself to get more government experience to ultimately, uh, ultimately get a job in government. And really why I chose that was because at the time I had lost a lot of confidence in myself. And I thought that I needed to be close to family in order to manage my day to day. I was kind of, I was still struggling with my mental health and really relying a lot on my parents to help me make decisions, you know, get through stressful times at school so that I could finish my degree. And once I got into government, I found that it was much like I described diplomacy. It was kind of understanding multiple stakeholder groups, the employee management, trying to understand and articulate the needs of both effectively and bridge the divide. And there, similarly, I was very lucky, again, to have a lot of mentors who guided me. I started running large-scale staffing processes where we were hiring everything from a, you know, an admin clerk all the way up to a senior scientist or executive director for an associate deputy minister's office, which is essentially the highest level non-political appointee in government. And in that process, I, I was seen to have an affinity for working with with executives. And so I was then placed working on an assignment for a deputy minister and then ultimately rolled into a group within the Department of Health that was doing employee and labor relations. And I think that experience is really the essence of, of human resources. It's those day-to-day issues that become challenging and distracting for both the employee and the employer and all other HR programs and policies need to be designed around the worst case scenario to prevent it and keep people on track and and being able to succeed in their roles. So I, I did that for several years, but always asked myself, you know, was there something more that little voice inside of me that said that this wasn't like what you were meant to do was there. And I was an early adopter of LinkedIn and was looking around and playing with the technology, connecting with people, looking at jobs. And one day a job came up for employee relations specialist at H&M in Toronto. And I applied, 
six weeks later, I was wrapping up my apartment in Ottawa and moving my life to Toronto. And that's what really set me on the course of the journey that I think I'm on now, which is, you know, I was working with a, in a private sector company that was a lot more, you have a lot more flexibility in human resources to come up with creative solutions than you do in government. And so my team and I were able to do some really amazing things, which is what I think gave me the platform to, to come to New York. What are some distinctive, you mentioned flexibility, Mm -hmm. distinctive, I guess, flexible processes or just Mm -hmm. workarounds that, that was like, oh, wow, I could do this now when you transition, Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, H&M. Yeah, I think, you know, what has always um, been challenging about government and, and you don't hear this as much in other cities, but certainly in my hometown, there were, were a lot of negative stereotypes about folks that work in government because, you know, the front page headlines of the papers were always, you know, often stories about, you know, federal public servants who, you know, were not doing any work, but somehow managed to keep their job or a, a big mistake that somebody had made. And and the reality is, is that in government, the the collective agreements, the, the union protections and the regulations and acts that govern public service staffing, at least in Canada, public service staffing, employee relations are restrictive. And so it becomes trying to find creative ways to manage those bottom performers in, in my experience, again, I was working in employee relations instead of being able to focus on the, your best performing group. And I think that that varies depending on the, the part of the department you work in. So when I moved into retail, obviously, there's a lot more freedom for employers to set and change employer policy, to develop programs, to move people on that are no longer committed to the business or perhaps perhaps they're not performing, which frees up time for managers to work with those that that are contributing the most to the business. So I think that's what I really enjoyed there was being able to come up with creative solutions and, and to help people that for whatever reason are no longer able to contribute to the business in a productive way to move on in a way that hopefully leaves them feeling as good or as close to good on their last day as they did on their first. Um, and that was a challenge that I really enjoyed. So you started mm-hmm. in it was more so mm-hmm. a party scenario, right? You stepped into HR and the government. You were fortunate enough to meet uh, professionals in the space that were able to essentially handhold you and show you these opportunities. Mm-hmm. And you took your first initiative into, okay, let me try something new. You went to Toronto, H&M, right. experienced things, I guess, at a more consumer level, right? Opposed mm-hmm. to private issues that, you know, a government deals with, one could assume. Exactly. So Ottawa, Toronto, what brought you over to New York? What what was that third transition like? And what yeah. the, the American culture and really what HR looks like here from a culture? Yes, absolutely. So I, I, I have nothing but amazing things to say about my time at H&M. I was very fortunate to land with that company. It's an amazing organization in the perspective that so many people that started with that company, even, you know, at store level or junior corporate roles have been been able to build enduring careers that have taken them internationally or, or provided them then with the stepping stones to opportunities with other companies. And that was exactly my story. So I started with them in an employee relations role 
And very quickly, I had an amazing mentor by the name of Tony Galley, who was the country manager of Canada. So that was essentially the highest ranking position in Canada. She was responsible for the performance of the market. Uh, she saw something in me and asked me to be her country human resources manager, which was essentially her right hand and the, the leader of the HR team in Canada. I had so little experience at that time in retail and and we, she had a lot of patience and devoted a lot of time to coaching and developing me. And I was able to you know, go through my first year where I was really struggling to get results with my team in terms of making sure the team was appropriately staffed, uh, you know, getting things done in terms of improving employee engagement and learning outcomes, uh, reducing employee turnover were some of the mandates that I had. And eventually with patience and some support, it started to take, you know, the, uh, some of what we had working on was starting to take shape and, and make some impact. And along with the team that um, I worked with in Canada, we were able to get some some really strong results in terms of becoming known as an employer of choice in retail for part-time workers. Um, we did a lot of work around retail uh, talent development. We were able to reduce a lot of costs around external recruiting fees and really make H&M a, a talent destination for experienced retail managers, which um, helped our business to grow in Canada. And those successes helped um, me be recognized by the global team who then um, put me on a couple of different assignments and which culminated in me coming here to New York. So I was asked to come to New York in 2017 to start a, a corporate HR team focused on corporate employees that were really above store level for H&M US, but about two months before I was set to come, the person that was leading the HR team, so who was the head of HR for H&M US's 500 stores and 16,000 employees, got a new job back in the UK. And so I was tagged to, from a little market of Canada with 4,000 employees and 80 stores, I was asked to come and lead the US team. So that's that's how I landed here. And it was a tough, tough transition. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what what made it so tough? Uh, what culturally yeah. is a, something you've never seen before? Was it simply just at mass, like four thousand? I think you mentioned sixteen thousand. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, great, great questions. So I joked with the global team who was involved in succession planning, country human resources managers into new markets that I wouldn't have put me in the role. Only because, and this is a lesson for any founders or, or folks that lead teams out there, you know, I think that for me, had I been the HR leader advising on that transition, I would have said maybe send her to London, like a smaller market, something a little bit more similar to Canada before you put her in New York, which is such, I mean, the U.S. is such an important brand to H&M's brand image or such an important market to H&M brand image. And it's also very culturally different. So one was size, two was the, the cultural differences. So I think what a lot of North American companies do when they transition executives from US to Canada, Canada to the US, is there is an assumption that we are very culturally similar. And in a lot of ways, that is true. We speak the same language, we consume the same media, we celebrate many of the same holidays. But the way that our 
the sort of the fabric of our society, the way that our governments take care of us, the way that the relationship between employee and employer is set up, especially in New York, work culture in comparison to Canadian work culture is very different. I came in with a very consultative, collaborative work style to lead a team of 35 people from a variety of markets and some international across the U.S. and some international. And a lot of those people were not looking to me for, here's how I'm thinking about this and how might we do this together? They were looking at, for me to tell them what to do and to have a very distinct vision for the team and to be driving towards that vision in a way that demonstrated a lot of confidence. And that just wasn't where I was in my career at that time. And nor did I understand that or have anybody to help me develop those skills. So I kind of had to figure it out and it was, it was hard. So we're talking a lot about work cultures right now mm-hmm. culture within the organization. Mm-hmm. How important is being aware of the culture when you first step into it? How important mm-hmm. is it for you to understand what you're getting into before you're even at day one? So you understand, yeah. okay, this is how this organization operates. This is how this organization deals with tougher conversations, whatever it may be. How important is that? Yeah, and to add to that, if you could speak on more so the contrast of a leader coming into a position mm-hmm. as let's say a prospective candidate coming in. Yeah. So at first on culture, I think it's extremely important. And one of the things that I've learned about myself and about women and marginalized groups in particular, in the way that we approach our job search, especially in a tough market, which I would say that right now, when I'm talking to folks that are looking, depending on, on what your profession is, that things are moving a little bit more slowly, especially in GNA positions, given the layoff, some of the layoffs we've seen this year, we tend to approach jo- a job search from the perspective of, I am lucky to have this opportunity. I am lucky to be here because we recognize that there has been a history of perhaps that we were considered for this particular role before, or that we're competing against another a pool and we need to show up in a certain way to be the selected candidate for that position. And I think sometimes what that does is it prevents us from asking really important questions about culture. I think we know in which conditions we thrive. So what I know is that I need a leader that is affirming And that is available to me to talk issues through and is going to give me a little pat on the head for once in a while. That to me will keep me going through the worst of times. I was joking with somebody the other day that I'm like a succulent. I don't need a lot of water, but it is important to know when to water me and how much. And so no, being able to recognize those things about yourself. I also have a hard time with being micromanaged. I don't, I like a bit of autonomy in my work. Some people like a lot of direction and guidance. So it's important to know what work style and what the the culture is. So to ask very specific questions about that and to approach looking for a job like you might making your trip reservation at that hotel or, or that, you know, your Friday night dinner reservation, if you're lucky to be able to go out for dinner, like 
we spend so much time reviewing the headphones that we're going to buy or the trip that we're going to take, but I don't know that we always do that with corporate cultures. And so I would recommend asking very specific questions to your leaders about everything from the, the technology set that they use and, and the, the tools that they're, you're going to have access to and to enable you to do your job, to how feedback is given, to you know, what's the last time you had to give somebody really difficult feedback or, or even let somebody go and tell me what that looked like so that you get a clear picture, check last door, talk to people that have worked there before, because it's those day-to-day conditions that are, that are going to enable you to do your best work or not. And those are the things that make coming to work joyful or a drag. So that checklist, essentially, right? Hey, mm-hmm. stand the tech stack, understand team dynamics, have self, an element of self-evaluation, who mm-hmm. are working style, things like that. People, as people, I mean, candidates or college students, young adults that are starting to get really involved into finding a career and seeing what, mm-hmm. how do you, how would you advise them to go about this process? I mean, there's not like a checklist that, hey, make sure you ask these questions or make sure you do. Right. How would you advise them to go about this this thorough walkthrough, essentially, in terms of mm-hmm. and on the other side, part two, mm-hmm. the, how would you advise companies to almost make that seamless exploration process a little more welcoming and not mm-hmm. more? Yeah. So I think being able to ask those questions comes with time and experience and confidence. But I think there's a couple of like, if we start with self, if you have the opportunity to do any sort of strengths assessment, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder, StrengthsFinder, you can buy a book for, I think, $15 on Amazon or do a test for free and understand what some of your strengths are and have those handy as you're going through the interview process so that you can appropriately represent some of the places that you really show up well and some of the areas that maybe you need to be complimented using also you know, previous work experiences or, or experiences in group projects, if you're new, new, new to career or volunteer experiences to say like, okay, I know I was at my best when, you know, I'm a great host or an event coordinator because I know a lot of people and can, you know, drive participation in an event, but like the details around how much the venue costs and how many people can attend or ticket sales, like those, I'm not an administrator. So I know I'm paired best with a strong administrator. Those types of examples, knowing those and having those handy during the process so that you can ask those questions about who you'll be working with and and what support is available to you. I think on tech stack and, and questions of that nature, you will gain more confidence and understanding of that in time and how companies are organized. So for example, for me, something in, in a human resources team is that, you know, HR operations teams work in, in different ways. And some of that work becomes more difficult or more straightforward when the company is organized in a certain way. So over time, I've learned how to ask questions around like, okay, will my team be leading payroll? I'm not a payroll expert, so I prefer not to lead payroll. Okay, great. Payroll sitting under finance. Do you have a a tech stack 
or do you need an HR system? If you do, okay, I'm not necessarily a systems implementation person. So I'd like to ask about the budget I have available to bring somebody on. So these are questions that you learn how to ask with confidence. I think for companies, having a retro on folks that are succeeding really well in their positions and who acclimatize very quickly to their roles or who similarly were not successful and asking you know, both that hiring manager and having the, the the talent acquisition or people team take a look at like what factors were present in that success or in that the, the or in that I, I don't want to say failure, but in that misfit for that role. And let's make sure that we're asking or presenting transparently a lot of aspects of you know that role. You know, for example, you might work have a leader who requires like somebody to really over communicate with them and who may be perceived as some as a micromanager. And so it's important that you're asking questions of those candidates and really putting up front saying, you know, you'll be working with Jennifer and Jennifer prefers this level of communication. Can you tell me about how you've over communicated in previous roles or worked with managers in the past who require frequent updates? So those are things that you can do to better assess candidates and bring the right right fit into roles. I like how you mentioned different mm-hmm. provide mm-hmm. operational ways to get things done, whether it be tech, mm-hmm. tech stack or processes in terms of how they deal with employees, candidates, things mm-hmm. like that. I know we, we mentioned your journey with H&M, also we're in a leadership role with Aritzia. Mm-hmm. You mentioned even earlier in the episode that you worked at a health tech startup, TF. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that dynamic light? I mean, huge multi mm-hmm. multi-billion dollar company, startup environment. What are those two experiences like for you? And what how what would you speak on to the audience in terms of you being a leader, how you were able to lead in those two different scenarios? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it required very different skills, but ultimately, you know, complementary skills that enabled me to get a broad array of experiences under my belt that helped me be more effective in the work that I do with companies today. But yeah, really different experiences, man. I mean, like every company is so unique in the way that you work internally, the dynamic of internal relationships. I think you know, H&M was interesting because it, it at the time, and it's changed from what I understand a lot now, but I always joked about it being the world's second largest retailer that worked a lot like a family business in the sense that you at H&M to get things done, you had to be very scrappy. There wasn't a lot of in infrastructure built in terms of tools and templates that you were expected to use to guide your work and to, you know, to present data in a certain way or or to ensure that everyone was working in, in a consistent way. And so you the the folks that I met that tended to be most successful in that environment were folks that were very entrepreneurial. And who, and what's interesting about that as one of H&M's values is the entrepreneurial spirit and could kind of ferret out, make connections in the business and figure out how to get things done. Aritzia is, is fa- what was when I was working there founder led and was 
designed to be very operationally strong in the sense that everyone, regardless of your department, was expected to work in a similar way using similar ways to present information, to think through issues, to organize your work. And what I found at times at Aritzia was your currency was very much aligned with your ability to work in the Aritzia way. And that's something that I struggled with at times because my brain didn't think like that. In leaving Aritzia, I really appreciate that now because it it meant that there was some consistency and rigor in the way that we were thinking through issues. And I think one of the best experiences that I had in, in that role, which that I then brought with me to Tia and bring with me, you know, in my work today is really having an informed opinion on something. And I think when in human resources, there can be a lot of five alarm fires. Example, you know, your sales leader goes into, I mean, I'm talking about a retail location. So that's what I'm most familiar with. Your sales leader goes into the flagship your $20,000 down on the day, you've had five call outs, the store manager is frantic because they're understaffed. The, you know, your sales leader thinks that they did not get good customer service. They weren't impressed. The store was messy. And the first call is going to be to their HR leader saying, you know, what are you going to do about this? We have a major problem and we can be very reactive and spring into action And what Aritzia taught me was when presented with facts like that, really dig deeper to make a recommendation about what you're going to do next. Was it five callouts today or is it five callouts every day? Is what were the last employee engagement survey results like? Is everybody disengaged or did the sales leader meet one person who's not the right fit for the role in the store that day and is making a generalization. And so, and then, you know, going to Tia, you're, I I was in a startup where like not a lot was built and there were some company rituals, but yet I was responsible for creating a lot of those. And so I had to rely on the knowledge from larger companies to inform, you know, what I thought the best approach for a, a much smaller business was. And in a startup, you have to be prepared to wear many hats and be an expert on a lot of things because you don't have the infrastructure of a large company where you've got a person for everything. And so you have to kind of figure it out. So a lot of very different environments and and requiring different skills. So through all those experiences, do you have a preference Mm -hmm. of... I'd rather be a larger company. I'd rather be a smaller company, a startup, a you know the largest enterprise in the world. What is your mm-hmm. preference at the end of the day? Where do you find yourself enjoying it the most? Mm. Or the people, people that that works. Yeah, or the, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, I'm really enjoying working for myself right now. Well, I I do a lot of my my clients right now are earlier stage, and and I love that because I think there's a real ability to impact at a very early stage the the culture and the values of the the company and the 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 rituals that guide the employee experience and being someone who believes so deeply in creating workplaces where folks can show up bring themselves their whole selves to work and 
who can um, learn something that they're, you know, for the time that they're with the company that they will take into the rest of their lives. I think, you know, early stages that it's the best uh, chance that you have to impact that. I will say it's important to know your stage because I do think, you know, when I go back to corporate, I don't know. I'll have to see if I have another build in me. You know, the the early stages of a startup are a lot of work. They can be very stressful, especially when you're in a complex business like I was in healthcare. And my thought after that was either I was going to work for myself or go somewhere there that I was much later later stage where my the the um scope of things that I had to worry about and impact as a leader was somewhat reduced so that I could sleep better at night. But that's that's me today. Ask me in two years, I may have a different opinion. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. And hey, two yeah. years from now, you'll be back on the Newsy podcast and we'll ask that exact question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so kind of a blast from the past right now. We mm-hmm. want to talk about COVID specifically. Yes. COVID's mm-hmm. impact on the HR and the people space uh, mm. from your perspective. And not only its impact on HR, but you know, just your personal life in general. Walk us through all mm-hmm. that. Because, you know, for HR people during that time, it was extremely difficult. Um, yeah. a, lot of, a lot was put on your plate that, you know, you guys are navigating something no one has ever had to navigate. None of us. It was all completely new. So yeah, please walk Mm -hmm. us through that. We were so interested to hear about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Great, great question. So opinion on COVID is I I still think we don't understand the impacts of that time of separation and isolation of people. And I think it, it is showing up in interesting and unexpected ways in the workplace still. And so if I think about the role of the HR leader during COVID, it sort of felt like our renaissance in the sense that finally uh, a lot of companies seem to understand the value of this function as a risk mitigator, as a business driver, and that making sound people decisions with sort of a long-term view can positively impact business. And I think HR leaders worked tirelessly alongside their company, their executive leadership teams to keep people engaged, keep people safe. And, and then also deal with, you know, the emotional labor of supporting employees through a lot of uncertainty financially, people losing family members, people getting sick, people needing to make tough decisions about when and how they were going to live so that they could be closer to friends and family in a time of, you know, isolation. And then, you know, we went into June 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, where uh, issues that many, you know, I think good HR leaders and conscious companies had already started to consider and work through were really brought to the forefront and HR leaders were asked to represent their companies and speak to what is our company doing and what hasn't our company done and have some really tough discussions with employees around the ways that they may have felt unseen, unheard, unsupported in their workplaces. And so overnight, HR leaders became not only responsible for the employee experience in the workplace, but also out of the workplace. And we became 
the chief health and safety officer, chief communications officer, chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, chief, you know, internal and external spokesperson in some senses. And unfortunately, what's happened over the last few years is we've seen, you know, as we've ridden the wave, you know, return to work and, and now, you know, what we saw really in 2022 and 23, a lot of tough decisions for companies that have had to lay uh, workers off. It, that focus on the employee, and I will also say, as we know, during COVID, we had the whole great resignation as well. The labor dynamic shifted, you know, in a lot of sectors, it was really difficult to attract and retain staff. And so, you know, HR teams were working overtime to get company staff to come up with creative ways to attract employees to the business and keep them safe while doing so in sectors like hospitality, retail, and whatever, when we were back to work. Then, you know, all of a sudden budgets are being cut and HR leaders are having to make tough decisions around, you know, how uh, the employee base will be impacted, oftentimes losing large sections of their own teams, including the folks that we, and disproportionately, I would say, and I don't have the exact facts to back this up, but if you look around a lot of the tech layoffs, you will see that a lot of des- diversity, equity, and inclusion teams have been decimated or, or significantly reduced. And so now it's back to sort of like do everything that you were doing, but do it with less people. And the employee experience now that the labor market is a little tighter and we've got, you know, we've got or less tight and we've got more candidates on the market, we don't need to care as much about the employee experience. And so now you're going to do it with less budget too. And so a lot of HR leaders are burnt out. And I think it's it's a really interesting time. And I would be curious to see data on how many senior HR leader positions are remaining vacant or turning over quickly. I'm seeing a lot of people in my own network doing what I did and leaving corporate and going into consulting. And so that's sort of the HR leader role in terms of the COVID, you know, what I can see is I think for many of us, COVID was the first experience, you know, if we were fortunate, it was the first really destabilizing experience that we had in, in our lives where life as we knew it changed overnight. There are many people around the world that have been dealing with that in many ways for, you know, and deal with it every day. But in North America, at least many of us have been fortunate that, you know, our day to day is a bit more predictable. And I think that that the the lack of information, the needing to make certain choices and, and folks not necessarily agreeing all the time with what our governments were recommending for us. I think that's created a trust delta and a real uncertainty amongst people, which is translating into the employee experience. And what I've have seen is that I think folks, I think it's harder to create positive dynamics in workplaces when folks are are have felt un- uncertain and are feeling a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we have so much. I feel like I'm blabbing now, but we have so much uncertainty in the world right now. You know, we've got two wars happening, an election next year. We're dealing with increased, you know, climate issues and extreme weather events. And I think we're all feeling a little bit uncertain around the way the future looks. And I think that really shows up in workplaces and it makes it so that in order to create 
a productive environment of high trust, companies need to double down on internal communications and transparency and really strong employee programs so that employer and employee expectations are clear and there are rituals that employees know that they can depend on so they know what to expect from their employer. Are there any companies you'd like to highlight that you think took care of business during that time? Or are there any mm. individuals or mentors that you're that you're connected with that you would like that this opportunity to almost shout them out and say, hey, whether you, you appreciate the work they've been doing or mm-hmm. you don't know them, right? And say, hey, outside looking in, I really like what so-and-so is doing when it comes to their approach and either dealing with those kind of situations or just really just any HR processes. Yeah, great, great question. I would say any any company that managed to, especially for frontline retail workers and and hospitality workers whose industries were you know decimated or you know you know retail establishment closed, any company that found creative ways to keep folks on payroll and benefits for as long as possible, I have. Uh, respect for because I think that was the right thing to do. And ultimately companies that were able to do that, I think were able to turn around a lot and serve guests once we were open for business again, a lot more effectively. Some HR leaders that I really respect, there's a woman named, and I've not been fortunate enough to meet her, but there's a woman named Colleen McCreary who works for, she used to work for Credit Karma. She was their chief people and places officer. I believe now she's working for a PE or venture capital firm. She produces a lot of great thought leadership in the space of people and culture. And two things that she's done that I really admire is she talks about the fact that she believes that layoffs are the worst thing for a company because they reduce trust to such a degree that it makes it really difficult for companies to, you know, to, to maintain momentum or, or, you know, get back to similar levels of productivity and so I really respect her thought leadership. Another thing that she's she's done and they did at Credit Karma was she took pay equity to sort of the next level and created consistent bands across all functions. So that recognizing that it takes every discipline to make a successful organization. And so you wouldn't see large disparities between historically female job categories and historically male job categories. So, you know, she would talk about seeing some consistency in like engineering and uh, HR leadership, for example, which I have, which HR is traditionally a female, more female dominated job, job category, which I have a lot of respect for. So yeah, those are, I I would say those, those are folks or types of companies that I have a lot of respect for. Well, shout out to Colleen. We will definitely be checking out yeah. her content, hopefully yeah. a future guest <laughs> in the C podcast. Yeah. But, Laura, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think everyone listening is going to get so much value from this, but if they want to learn more about you and everything going on with the people, people, where can they find you and learn more about uh, the people, people? Yes. So you can visit my website at peoplepeople.me. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Laura Hammond, and that's where I publish my thoughts. And sometimes I'm on Instagram at peoplepeople.me, but I'm not, my content game isn't very strong lately, but that's a goal for the new year. <laughs> hey, well, we will be tapped into the people, people Instagram account this Great, upcoming year. We're going to hold you accountable, Laura. We're going to hold you thank accountable. Thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> Let me know. Give me, give me a like or a, I don't know, an emoji. <laughs> <laughs> 
hundred percent. Well, again, Lord, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And to everyone listening to the New C Podcast, thank you very much as always. And until next time.